Baptist Church. If this is your very first time to get to be with us here today at Ridgecrest, just let me say, where have you been? We've been looking for you. We're glad you're here today and took the time to be with us today, and we would like to get to know you a little bit better and like for you to get to know us a little bit better. So uh, if you look inside your bulletin, the very last little fold-out is a little short tear-off, and it's perforated, so it tears off very quick and easily for you. We ask you to fill out the portion that pertains to you as a first-time guest. That's called our connection card, and and uh, if you'll fill that out and hang on to that so that as, as you're leaving the service, right in the middle of the room here is a guest table, and we'll have some greeters there to take that little uh, card from you, and they'll hand you a welcome packet. And in there you'll find all kinds of information about Ridgecrest. You'll also find some gifts for you and your family to enjoy. But most of all, welcome home to Ridgecrest. We want you to feel like the moment you walked in the door, you discovered you were at your family reunion. And, uh, and we're, you're just one of us. We're, we're glad to have you here. Well, let me share with you what we call the big three, our big three announcements. We're like pushing this this week to get people to remember. First of all is we've got some camps coming up, some summer camps coming up. And the first one is tomorrow, and that is our kids' camp. They leave tomorrow. And Joe tells me he has 70. 70. So you want to pray for them that they all come home. And then uh, later on in July, the, the uh, youth will be leaving for camp. They're going uh, to Centrifuge in, on the 15th. So keep these camps in your prayers. Also, uh, our next one is uh, coming up in September is RBC at the Durham Bulls night. That is where we go as a church to the Durham Bulls game. And uh, that's September the 1st. Tickets will go on sale in July. So you know that's coming. And then last of all, Vacation Bible School. We don't want to forget VBS. And uh, that's coming up, so if you'll take just a second, watch this little 30-second clip of uh, what happens when you go to Vacation Bible School. Now, how many of you watched the video, or how many of you watched the preschool choir getting played? <laughs> In the theater world, that's called being upstaged. <laughs> well, we're so glad to have our preschool choir singing for us this morning. They're going to share two songs with, uh, for us, and Mariana Timmons is their director, and I appreciate her leading them. You sit back and enjoy our preschool choir.
That is a bunch of dingalings, I'm telling you. That was fun, guys. Thank you so very much. Would you thank them again for a great job? Good job, man. Thank you very much. Great. As they're making their way out, would you stand? And I want you to look around and find about five or six people you haven't had a chance to speak to yet. And would you kind of shake their hand and say hello to one another? Would you do that real quick? Now let's join in singing that chorus together. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. Let's sing it together now. He hideth my soul in the cleft of the rock. The shadows of dry thirsty land. He hideth my life in the depths of his love. He hideth my life 
sacrifice on the cross. Help us to share the good news of Jesus. We pray for our staff as they minister to our congregation. Help us to be positive in a world that needs to know you and your love. We pray for those dealing with health issues. Please bless our offering as we continue to reach out to the lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Well, the past two Sundays I was on vacation, and I'm back, and, uh, and this Sunday the pastor is on vacation, so you know what that means. We get to hear some good preaching. <laughs> Can you edit that off of the recording, Mark? Pick that. But uh, we are blessed to have in his absence uh, Dr. Chris Schofield. Chris, this is not his first time to be with us. He's been with us in the past, and, and he is the uh, with the... Uh, North Carolina uh, Baptist State Convention, and in that uh, office he plays, he is the director of the Office of Prayer for the uh, State Convention, and we are glad to have you with us today, and our prayers, God bless you as you get up and share with us after the choir brings their special music. The special music they're bringing is called uh, Move Me With Compassion. One of the things we need to ask God to do in our prayers is to turn our hearts with compassion toward the lost. They are everywhere, but they may look perfectly normal. They may look happy. They may look dressed fine. They may have money. They may have good jobs. They may be your neighbor. They may be a family member. But if they're lost, they're lost. And they need our compassion and our hearts turned toward them. And so that is our prayer. This is the choir special, Move Me With Compassion. Our soloist is Joy Pickett. Oh. 
Good morning, church. Thank you, uh, choir. Thank you, Al. What a great joy to be back here at Ridgecrest Church. Um, I did bring uh, my better half with me today, and I usually don't single her out, but, you know, uh, this year we celebrated our 37th year of marriage, have four daughters and five grandchildren, and uh, let me tell you, uh, I am so blessed to have Tammy uh, as my wife. And been kind of a mushball this morning, I don't know, but I'm very grateful, and she is such a blessing, and uh, well, I'm very grateful for that, and I'm very thankful for the days that she can travel with me. I, I'm in a different church about every Sunday, and I'm, uh, I'm very thankful for that. So, but I'm grateful for you. It's great to serve you here in this state uh, as a missionary through the Baptist State Convention. I've been back here uh, about uh, 15 years now serving here. Uh, before that, I was with NAM for seven years in the office of prayer there, and uh, I have um, have come to to a real conclusion in my own heart, and and have for many years now that uh, we're in uh, we're in desperate need for God, y'all. We are uh, at, at a very critical time in the life of the church. Uh, in America, it uh, you know it's interesting. Uh, people ask me all the time, "Do you think there's hope for revival to come?" I say, "Yeah, there's great hope." And in fact, in the last three or four years, I've probably been more encouraged at what I see in the life uh, of the church. Now, let me clarify that it's not everywhere, uh, but uh, there seems to be this intensification of an awareness in the life of the body of Christ that we desperately need God and we need him to move in a powerful way. Uh, it isn't something that we can put on the calendar and think it's going to happen because we put revival on the calendar. It isn't something that we can work up or we can muster up in our own self, pull ourselves up by our boot straps and say, hey, we're going to have revival. But it's only something that God can bring in the lives of his people when we begin to long for him. I love that great verse in Psalm 147, verse 11. It says, the Lord delights in, in those uh, who fear him. And he delights in those who long for his mercy. Now, what I'm beginning to see in the hearts of pastors and leaders is that they're beginning to long for his mercy. Because we know that apart from God's mercy, that we are toast. He will destroy us. He will turn us over our, to ourselves and we'll destroy ourselves. Because we know what man can do. But when we look at the situation in America, we realize that apart from a movement of Almighty God, <laughs> nothing's going to happen. We're going to continue in this trend. In fact, let me read you this uh, from a, a work by Robert Coleman. It says, men everywhere are sensing that something is missing in the life of the church. We have a form of religion, 
but no power. For most churchmen, <clears throat> there is no thrill in personal devotions, no spring in the step, no shout in the soul. The joy of sacrifice is gone. Complacency is the norm. While the church flounders in mediocrity, the world plunges deeper into sin. For the average person, life has lost its meaning. It is eat, drink, and be merry for every man for himself. The sacredness of home and family is forsaken. Standards of decency in public and private are debased. A spirit of lawlessness pervades the land. But the day of reckoning is sure to come. Moral and spiritual decline has its limits. There comes a time when we must reap the folly of our ways. Already we are beginning to see the disintegration of enduring values in society, and unless something happens soon to change our course, civilization as we know it is on its way out. But there is hope. And the reason there's hope is because dry bones can live again. God is the one that can bring about a great movement of his spirit among his people. There's a sleeping giant in America, and it's called the church. And he must awaken our hearts to our desperate need for him. This morning, I want you to turn with me to James chapter 4, if you will. We're going to look at this uh, great little chapter uh, and we're going to look at just three things here that I want to point out this morning related to this whole element of revival. Uh, and and I, I titled this Revival God's Way. And what we see from this uh, passage of Scripture is that James is approaching the church and, and uh, addressing the church, and he's addressing God's people. And he's saying to the people of the Lord that there are things in your lives that are not pleasing to me. There are things that are taking place. In fact, the key thing is you've committed spiritual adultery uh, with me. You have embraced the world. You have truly uh, become worldly in your thoughts and in your ways and your behaviors. And so because of that, my Holy Spirit is pursuing you. And uh, because of that, I am, I am drawing you and I am wooing you back to myself. Uh, but there's only one way back to me, and that's my way. You're not going to come back to the Lord any other way but God's way. And we're not going to see revival happen our way. It's only going to happen God's way. And what happens then with this great passage from verse 7 forward is that James begins to lay down what must take place in the lives of his people if they're going to return to the Lord. Now, I do believe with all my heart, and I've got to come down here. I know this little space is just inviting me to be here. So, uh, but the thing about this is, is when you look at James and you see uh, that, that he's very practical in his approach, he's very practical in his teaching, and what he's doing is he's trying to help the people understand something. And that is that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they cannot experience revival. And so uh, as he leads up to, cha to chapter 4, verse 7, he shows them this great and glorious work of the Spirit of God as what Francis Thompson, uh, a, a poet and uh, a great Christian uh, 
wrote, he says, the, the Holy Spirit is like the hound of heaven. Now, now the hound of heaven, you say a hound, uh, when you begin to think about a hound, hound dog, uh, what do you think about? You think about something that is chasing a, a rabbit or a coon in the woods, and he, he stays on the trail. And what he wrote in that poem was that the Holy Spirit uh, never, never, ever gives up. But the Holy Spirit is after us. And that's why we always are saying in our lives that God has got a second chance, third chance, fourth chance, uh, and, and so forth and so on. And we know that to be true in our own personal lives as we walk with the Lord. We know that to be true from the Scripture, that, that God's Word is very clear, that the Holy Spirit is at work in the hearts and lives of not only lost people drawing them, but the Holy Spirit is, in the hearts, is working in the hearts and lives of Christians to draw them to himself. And in times of revival, that is always the case because revival is not for the lost world. Revival is for the church. And if the church can become hot-hearted for the Lord once again, then the church can experience the great blessings of God that he brings through revival. And what that is, that there is, there is, is, is a, a great manifestation of his holy presence with his people. And so his people begin to experience his closeness and his nearness. He draws near to them. And when he draws near to them, God begins to do that wondrous work in their hearts and lives of cleaning out those, those things that are hindering his work. One of the things that we're facing in the life of the church today is so, so, so much a need. And that is we are lacking in what we call the vital spiritual life. I see it everywhere. The church is waning in its life. When people come through those back doors and they do not know Christ, you know what they want to see? They want to see life. They're not interested in uh, just programs or anything, when they come through those doors, they want to see life. They want to see it on your eyes or in your eyes. They want to see on your faces. They want to see it and sense it in this building. They want to know that there is something more than what they have. They want life, life. And that is what revival brings to God's people, a newness of life in their lives. And what it also does is helps God's people to remember that God is the only one that can bring that life. Now, when we look at this passage of Scripture, what we see is James begins by helping them to understand it. We'll, we'll go through this first section pretty fast. Helps them to understand the particular things that's going on. He says, where do wars and fights come from among you? So they're having problem getting along, problem, a problem getting along. He says, do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your, in your members? So he, he digs a little deeper. He says, not only are you having wars, and that, that describes, that describes uh, if you will, a continual, contentious kind of uh, uh, spirit that's there. In other words, the church is just in an uproar about all the time. Somebody's, 
somebody's not happy. A lot of times it's only a few people, really, but it manifests itself in other ways. So he's saying, you know, we've got some contentious spirits here, uh, people who are never happy, people are always uh, 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 truly bringing, a, they, they have a warring spirit about themselves. They're combative all the time. They, they want to do that. And we also have people who are fighting, people who are explosive in their lives. They, if something in their lives has injured them or hurt them or uh, they're involved in some kind of sin and boy, they, it's got them on edge. And let me tell you, they blow up every so often and they leave uh, all kind of broken relationships behind them. But then he says, now the real reason for this is that you, you've, you've set your heart on these hedonistic and lustful desires uh, that are part of the flesh. So he keeps on digging there with what is the root cause. Then, if you will, in verse 2, look what he says. You lust and you do not have. You murder, you covet. So covetousness is, is there. Uh, they are coveting what other people have. They got their eyes off the Lord. They're beginning to move somewhere else. But then look what he says. He says, <clears throat> you fight and you war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. Now, right there, he begins to identify this deep heart need. The vital spiritual life is lacking in their life. Why, why do we know that? Because there is prayerlessness that's found in their life. Listen, folks, one of the great, uh, if you will, keys to understanding that we are truly, truly in desperate need for revival of the vital spiritual life in the life of the church is our prayerlessness. We, we're not dependent upon the Lord. We're dependent on our means, our mo methods, our approaches, um, our, 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 uh, our programs, all kind of things to do the work that only God can do in people's lives. And folks, prayer is, is at the heart of that. And we can spend the whole morning this morning right here on this whole element of prayerlessness. But let me just say this. When a church is not dependent on the Lord, when the church is not a house of prayer, when the people of God are not bending the knee and they're not seeking, knocking, and asking, then the church begins to try to accomplish God's spiritual work in their own power. And when that happens, we get what the flesh can do. And that's absolutely nothing from a spiritual standpoint. Now, what James also says here, not only are you prayerless, he says your prayers have wrong motives with them. Now, look what he says here. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. But then verse 3, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures. In other words, their asking comes from a heart that says, I want what I want. And the reason I want it is so that I might make myself happy. You know, uh, through the years in ministry, um, you, by the way, I pastored 30 years ago up in Roxborough at Somerset Baptist Church. I don't know if anybody knows anybody up there, but, uh, and at that time, you, your present pastor at that time, Don Chastine, actually came up and did a revival for me at one time. But uh, through the years, in pastoring and serving denominationally in prayer for the last 22 years, preaching in churches all over North America and here, there's one thing that uh, I've noticed about the church in America. Oftentimes, as we pray, we pray toward making ourselves more comfortable. That is at the heart of our praying. Now, let me tell you, 
the surgery that is serious is the one I'm having, right? We all know that, that we need to, to ask of the Father on behalf of one another with physical felt needs. But when physical felt needs begin to be all that we are praying about, all of a sudden we have our hearts in the wrong place. Here's a truth about prayer that we all need to hear. We begin to pursue the things we pray toward. And when we as the people of God pursue those things that are fleshly and those things that are, if you will, temporally based, then all of a sudden we have our eyes and our hearts off of the Lord. And when that happens in our lives in prayer, then all of a sudden we are, are, are constantly bombarding the heavens with those kinds of requests that will make things easy for us. Because it becomes about us. And that's what James is saying. Your motives, you want to spend it on your own pleasures. This is what you're crying out to the Lord. You want to treat God like one of those slot machines. You put a coin in, you pull the trigger, and hopefully you're going to hit the jackpot. But he goes deeper. Look what he says. He says, not only do you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your own pleasures, but it's verse 4. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. In other words, he calls it out, calls them out to the real problem. They have committed spiritual adultery. The vital spiritual life has waned in their life to such a point that they have become friends with the world. Look what he says here. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? Now, what's interesting here about this great little passage, and we're just skimming it, uh, and, and that is this. He says to the people of the Lord, he says, you have become an enemy of God. Have you ever really thought about that? Have you really thought about what that describes? You know what it really describes? It, it describes an enmity between someone, like, like they are enemies on a battlefield. And so what it describes, though, is that God is standing opposite of us as his people in his battle array against us. Now think on that a minute. You know, Paul would say this. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Do you believe that? Of course we do. But Paul says something, James says something else here. And basically what James is saying is this. If God be against you, who can be for you? Now that's a very solemn Pointed, straightforward comment to the people of God. Now, through the years, I've had people say, well, well, you know, God lives in us. How can he be against us? Well, the scripture is very clear here. When we as God's people make a choice in our lives to commit spiritual adultery, we have crossed the line. 
And God says, I love you in, uh, in the covenant love, the loyal chesed love. I love you, and I will not stand for this. I am practicing tough love towards you. There comes a point in, in every marriage we have to exercise tough love. There comes a point in a relationship that that has to happen. There comes that point in the life of our relationship with the Father that the Father has to say to, say to us each in our sin, I love you, but I must discipline you. I love you, but I come against what you're doing because I love you. And that's what he's saying to the people of God right here. He says, I have come against you. And folks, I want to tell you, that's a scary thing. It's to think that the God of this universe is against his people. But it has happened, and it has happened. And I believe with all my heart we're right there in the life of the church in America. Every denomination is down in baptisms. Every church, not every church, but most churches are declining or maintaining. Majority of churches. And the reality of it is, regardless of whether we're growing or what in the life of the church in America, we are losing this culture to paganism right before our eyes. And even though there may be churches and communities baptizing thousands of people, the culture is not changing around us. And we've got to get honest about that. And we've got to begin to realize we need God. And here's what, here's, what, here's what is so interesting in this passage of Scripture, is that the Lord says, but I want you to understand something. The Scripture does not say in vain that the Spirit who dwells in you, and that's God's Spirit, who dwells in you, in us, yearns jealously. When God's people commit spiritual adultery and they turn away from Him, at that point in that time, God does, does not just, just uh, clean his hands of the situation. No, it's exactly the opposite. You know what God does? God begins to pursue us greatly. Now, aren't we glad of that? <laughs> and so what does it say? The scripture says <clears throat> that he yearns jealously. And he gives more grace, therefore he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So here's the picture. God is ready and pursuing like the hound of heaven. He's on our trail. He is after us. And he is ready to give more grace to the humble, not the proud. Not those who stiff, stiffen their necks, not those who, re, who resist him, not those who are determined that what they're doing is not wrong, not those who are determined that they can, they can walk on the edge of everything and say, I'm okay, not those who bow themselves up against God, but those who humble themselves before Almighty God. He says, I will pour out my grace. That's what God says. <laughs> That's his spirit. And then we have in this great passage as we wind things down this morning, we have his steps to revival. God's way. 
How do we return? How is it that that, that vital spiritual life is, it comes back? How is it that when we have committed spiritual adultery and we have turned away from God, we've depended upon ourselves, we're prayerless, and our prayers, they're, they're so inwardly focused on self. We're so self-centered. We yearn for the things of the world. We want success in the world's eyes. And we've turned totally away from the Lord in pursuing Him and godliness and holiness. How is it that we come back? Well, under this conviction and work of the Spirit, remember, the Spirit is essential here. Scripture says, therefore, submit to God. In other words, put yourself underneath his authority. It is a, it's a humbled act. It's a one where we say, it's, it's a military term that describes putting underneath authority, literally, so that we might obey the commands. So in other words, we submit to that authority. It is important for every Christian to understand and every person to understand that God is our ultimate authority. Amen? That's why the, the psalmist would say, I delight in those who fear me, in those who long for my mercy, because we understand something. God is our authority. And so he says, submit to God. But he also says something else here that's very important. He says, resist the devil. The term there describes this. this. It, descri it describes a, a hand joust. It means that you're, you, you yourself, all these are imperative, in their, so they're urgent. But what he describes here is, is, is something that, that, uh, uh, that I used when I played football, okay? When I played football, I remember I, I was between my junior and senior year, and uh, uh, a group of us decided we're going to go to football camp at Appalachian State University. And so we paid money, I forget how much it was back then, to go to football camp. Well, we didn't really understand what football camp was really all about. But let me tell you, about midweek, we couldn't move hardly because every muscle in our body was sore. And uh, we wondered, why did we pay all this money to come to football camp? But what I did learn was, was greatly used by, later on in, in, in my career playing football, which was <laughs> short-lived because I got injured in college, uh, but um, was the hand joust. I was a linebacker. And so there's a big old line to come out to you, and you, you use the hand joust while you do the, the bench press, you know, the hand joust, and you get your shoulders strong so you can lift them up and move them out of the way, and you can make the tackle. So that was one of those things I used. And that's what he's saying there as a, as a Christian. We have to realize something. We have a responsibility in this thing called temptation. And that is, temptation's going to come. It's going to happen in every one of our lives, but we have a responsibility. And that responsibility is to depend upon the grace and mercy of God, the Spirit of God in our lives to say no. It isn't something that we can do and muster up ourselves, but it is something that we are involved in. And that is saying no. And so we flee, sometimes from evil. But we've got to resist it first. And that means that, that we do it in his power, not ours. Now, what does he say about this? He says that the, the thing that will happen is the devil is a coward. The devil will flee away from us. 
We don't oftentimes think, it's not, he's not pictured that way uh, in media or in our culture, and that is the devil's not, pictured as a coward, but he is a coward. He's an angel of light. He's a deceiver. He, 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 he thrives in deceiving people. And so he, he, he's a coward. When, when we, as the people of God, stand up in the power and strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, then he will flee. That means if something's causing you a problem like the internet or, or a computer or a person in a relationship, then, then you've got to do the hand joust. You've got to do your part. You've got to get away from it. If, if the bottle or some kind of substance is causing you a problem, then you get away from it. You've got to push it aside. And so he says you've got to resist the devil, but notice something else he says here. He says you've got to draw near to God. Don't you love that? To draw near. It's the closest, most intimate uh, uh, proximity is what it means. You draw near to God in the closest, most intimate proximity. In your personal relationship with him, you draw near to God, and what will he do? He will draw near to you. But notice what else he says. He says you cleanse your hands. That's your outward, your conduct. And he says you purify your what? Your heart. That's the inward. You got to give attention to those inward attitudes and things that are causing you to stumble in your life. So you clean up your walk and your talk. You clean up your inward self. You do what you can do as a Christian. And you give it to the Lord. All of these are imperative. It must happen. We must have clean hands and a pure heart to be able to ascend the hill of the Lord. And then he says, you complete that repentance. You <laughs> Look what he says. He says, you lament and mourn, verse 9, and weep, and you let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. This is not something you're playing around with. You're serious. You're saying, oh, God, I am a sinner before you. You're saying, oh, God, will you cleanse my heart? You're saying, oh, God, I am sorry for my sin. You're saying, oh, God, will you make me whole? <laughs> and you're serious. This is genuine biblical repentance. You're not sorry you got caught. You're not sorry things have changed. You're sorry you have sinned against the holy God of this universe. And you say, oh God. But then he says, verse 10, I love this. Humble yourselves then in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Don't you love that? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. What does he mean by that? Well, the word humble means to be broken in such a way that you surrender. You surrender everything. You... you You just lay yourself out before the Lord. You're on your face. And you say, oh God, whatever happens next is in your hands. But notice here that he says it's before the Lord. 
or in his presence than the sight of the Lord. That's important. This is not about being before man. This is not about you making a show like the Pharisees. This is in the sight of the Lord. This is about God. Revival is always about God. And God says, I will lift you up, which is a beautiful term in the New Testament. You know, it describes someone who is being exalted to that rightful place and position that God has created them for. So you're restored. Restoration happens in that relationship with the Lord. And he allows you once again to walk in his resurrection power. I believe with all my heart that one of the reasons we're not impacting this culture with the gospel is because the church has committed spiritual adultery and we have turned away from the Father and depending upon him and we have sought out the ways of the world. We hadn't done it in some instances we hadn't done it intentionally. It's been very slow and it's been very gradual. But in the end, we began to long for the things of this world more than we long for him. And notice that it's not his blessings, it's him. And that's what he is doing in revival. He's restoring our hearts so that we might seek him. Because here's what he says. In Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. It's not about his blessings. It's about him. So where are you as a Christian? When people see you, when they walk through the doors in this church, what do they see? Their vital spiritual life? Is the life of Christ alive in your heart? Or is there something that's suppressing the light of Christ in your eyes and in your heart? Let's pray. Father, thank you today for this time for the time you've given each of us. Oh, Lord, we're in desperate need of you. And I pray that you, oh God, through the power and work of your pursuing spirit, will pursue us, oh God. You'll have mercy upon us. And that, God, we will not send away our day of grace, but we will embrace your call to return to you in godliness and holiness so that you might exalt us and lift us up once again to that rightful place of service 
and bless him. And we thank you. And we love you. And we make this prayer in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Revival doesn't begin with my brother or my sister. Revival begins with me. Will it start with you? Will it start with this church? Well, let's stand today, if you will. There'll be deacons and leaders down front here. Maybe you need to come today, and maybe God has quickened your heart about something in your life that may be keeping the vital spiritual life suppressed. Maybe there's something you need to really just give over to the Lord. Or maybe today you just need to come and pray and say, Oh God, I want my family, I want us as a church like never before to depend upon you in prayer. I want us to be a praying church. My house shall be a house of prayer. Is Ridgecrest Baptist Church a house of prayer? So you come. God leads your heart today.